Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. We've been looking at the book of Judges under the heading, Can You Deliver? And oftentimes, when you're called to that task, when you're called to be a deliverer of the message that God has for us to deliver, uh, you find yourself going against the odds. You, call you, you find yourself going against difficulties and struggles that make it hard to communicate that message or to do that. And the fact of the matter is, throughout history, when God calls people to be deliverers, uh, it's difficult. It's, it's, uh, uh, they're going against the odds. And the Bible is full of individuals such as that. Uh, we talked about David and David going up against Goliath. Uh, that, he's going against the odds. We think of the early disciples who they were uneducated and unschooled men is what the passage says. But yet God used them to bring a mighty revival and to bring the people to Jesus. It was a, a, an overwhelming task. They were going against the odds of the establishment. They were going against those things that hinder us from being effective. Today we look at Judges chapter 7, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, at least in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite passages. And we talked about a reluctant deliverer who now is going to go against the odds to pull off a major victory for the people of Israel. We're talking about Gideon. We're looking at Judges chapter 7, and we're looking at Judges chapter 7 under the heading, Against the Odds, because he's going against the odds in this passage. But before we can really understand what the odds were, we've got to go back in time and look at Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, to kind of set the context so that you can understand what this task is that God has for Gideon. Listen to what God's Word says. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. This passage obviously has relevance for you if you are called to be a deliverer somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your school, somebody at your place of work. They have relevance for you. But what I want to do this morning, I want to kind of spend the morning looking at this in a corporate context. I want to look at this as how it relates to us as a church. And the whole time that I speak to you this morning, I want you to remember that God gave me this text last year. As I, I told you, I, pre, I planned my calendars a year in advance. I've already got next year planned, unless God tweaks it a little bit here and there. So God prepared this for me back in last year as I began reading and outlining and studying Scripture, and I came to it these past couple of weeks. 
We're going to look at this from the perspective of the church. There's five truths we need to understand when God calls us to go against the odds. First, your assignment may seem risky. Your assignment may seem risky. Gideon knew exactly what God wanted him to do. Judges chapter 6 verse 14 says this, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Risky business. We've already seen what the, the Midianites were like. Uh, they were like locusts. They devoured everything in their face. This was a risky task for them. God has always operated that way. When you're going against the, God, against, against the odds, God all, it's always a risky business for you. But here's the thing. God wants to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God wants to use an ordinary church to do extraordinary things. Henry Blackaby, the author of Experience of God, he said this, if the task to which God calls you can be done in your own power, then perhaps it's not of God. He said, God will always ask you to do the impossible even risky. When it is accomplished, he says, so that when it is accomplished, God will get all the glory and not you. We see this happening throughout Scripture. Go back in time to a man by the name of Noah. God gave Noah an incredible task. It was a task going against odds. He said, Noah, I want you to build an ark. I want you to build a boat. Now remember, they had never seen rain in their entire life, much less a flood. They didn't know it. But he said, Noah, I'm going to flood the earth, and you're going to build a boat. And he was a long way from any water, okay, but build a boat. And so for 120 years, Noah was faithful to the task, and it says during that 120 years, he preached repentance. I think he was a Baptist preacher because he didn't see one convert. In 120 years, he preached. Imagine what would have happened to Noah if God did not come through. Risky. Risky. I think of a man by the name of Moses. Moses was called by God and said, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. I want you to go to Egypt. And I want you to tell, to tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship and serve me. But remember, Moses was wanted for murder back in Egypt. If he showed his face in Egypt, they were going to put him to death. Risky. Risky. Think of the, uh, the disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus called them to be disciples, to make disciples of all peoples, of all nations. And they were going against the Roman establishment, also the establishment of the church, or the church at that time, the religious establishment. Risky business. Matter of fact, many times they were told, don't you ever preach in the name of Jesus again. And they said, we would rather obey God than man. And so they did that. Risky. Risky. And we know that all of them, except for John, was put to death for their faith. And he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Risky. Risky for these individuals. So the question I'm asking you this morning is, what is God asking you to do? What leap of faith is God asking you to do in your individual life, but also in the life of the church? It's going, it has to be risky. It has to be risky because without God's leadership and without God's intervention, there's no way it could happen. If you could do it in your own strength, if you could do it in your own power, it's probably not of God. God is going to ask you to step out and do something that may seem risky, something that's against the odds. So when you're going against the odds, your assignment may seem risky. Second truth, 
when you're going against the odds, your army may be reduced. I want you to get a clear understanding of what's going on in this passage, in the whole context. God has already spoken to Gideon. Gideon has had a personal experience of God. We talked about this last week. He's had a personal experience of God, a personal encounter with God. He's experienced God in a powerful way. God has revealed to him, this is what I want you to do. There's no mistaking what he's supposed to do. He's already had this. He said, Gideon, you are going to be used by me to deliver my people out of the oppression that they've been under for all these years. In chapter 7, verse 1, Gideon has now taken his army of 32,000 people. He's taken his army, and he's camped just south of the Midianites. They're just north of him, and he's camped just uh, south of them. But then listen to what happens in chapter 7, verse 2 in this passage. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Let's stop right there. When I first read, I said, say what? That doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I can't understand that. Isn't the goal is that we want to build an army? When we go into battle, don't we want to have the meanest and the baddest army to go up against the other army? Isn't, isn't there supposed to be strength in numbers? But here's what God says. He says, I'm going to whittle this down because I want to make sure that I receive all the glory. I want to make sure that I receive all the honor. And so he says, I'm going to do this because I don't want the people of Israel to become proud. I don't want them to begin to brag. Look at verse 3. He says, Any, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. From 32,000 to 10,000, 22,000 abandoned. But I, this begins to make sense. I, I can understand this. God is beginning to, to wean, the, wean the group. He's beginning to break it down a little bit. You know, because you know, this proposition that God is giving to the people, it's risky business. And he's worried about those people who would be, who would be afraid uh, of the fight. You know, the fact of the matter is, he didn't want people to be in a battle who would run, run tail and they would run in the face of the enemy. He said, I don't want people to be afraid. This is a risky business, and you've got to be able to, to face the battle. As I thought about this passage this week and last week, and as I prayed about it, and I thought about it, and I prayed about it, God gave me a word. He said, Bruce, this is what I want you to say. This is what I want you to do. And I said, I don't want to do that, God. I said, I'm not going to do it. He said, yes, you will. You will. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So I went back the next day and I wrote it in my sermon. I said, okay, God, that's what I'm going to do. As I thought about this passage and I thought about uh, the context that we are in. Remember, God, this is... God gave me this sermon years ago, a year ago, or the idea. And I remember the vision that God has given me. I've been here for over, all, I think, six, not six years, five and a half years. God gave me a distinct vision for this church. The vision is very straightforward. God sent me here to revitalize this church, to reach the lost and the unchurched and impact our community with the gospel. That's the vision from day one revitalize this church and reach the lost and the unchurched and impact our community with the gospel. That's the vision that God has given me as pastor of the church. However, I know 
that there's some people in our church that are afraid. They're afraid of the vision. They have fear. I understand. I can, I can understand that. What if we fail? What if we make a mistake? What if we can't do it? I understand. It's a risky. It's risky. But here's what God told me. For those of you that are afraid of the vision, for those of you that are trembling with fear, God gives you permission to leave. He gives you permission to leave. No rebuke. No condemnation. He says, you have permission to leave and go elsewhere. I thought about that. I said, Lord, that's kind of uh, straightforward to the point. Yeah, but there won't be any mistake. Yeah, I don't think we have to sit here and try to parse that and exegete what the pastor said. The pastor said, if you're not on board with the vision that God has given, it's okay if you leave. And guess what? There's a church right down the road that would love to have you there to pour your life into them with your time, your talent, and your tithe. No rebuke, no condemnation. Just release. You are released and you can go. And I know what people say, well, yo, but my daddy helped build this church. I was here when we built that. Listen, you need, in order to fulfill the vision, you've got to love Jesus more than you do this building. You've got to love Jesus. Listen, you've got to love Jesus more than you love this church. You've got to love Jesus. Because God could wipe this building out next week and we'd still have Jesus. And we'd still have the gospel. And we'd still have the message that God would have for us to deliver. We're called to be deliverers. We're called to be deliverers. In order to do that, God may have to reduce the army. Trust me, not everybody wants to go where God wants to lead. Not everybody wants to share the vision. Not everybody wants to be a part of what God is trying to do. Not everyone believes in the mission to which God has called us to do. Gideon had 10,000 men to go to fight against 135,000 people. But look at what happens in verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. It's hard to understand what God is doing here. It's hard for us to grasp what God is, is working in this situation. It looks like he still wants to eliminate some people from that. And it's difficult for us to figure this out. It's hard for us to understand what he's doing. Look at verses 5 and 7. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go to his own place. Now there is speculation as to why did God choose this method. You know, some say that those that got down on their knees and looked and they lapped the water like this, they were more alert. They were not just looking out for themselves, but they were looking out to guard the people. Others say that those that stuck their head in the water, they want to tune to what was going on. The fact that we don't know why God chose this method. 
we can speculate all we want. The fact God said, I'm sifting the army. This is the way I've chosen to do it. So we, we can speculate all we want about that. But God wanted to narrow the field for those who would be on board with what they were trying to do. Sometimes we think that God wants to bring more and more people into the army. He wants to bring more and more people into the church. When really what God wants to do is He wants to minimize the church. He wants to, to, to cut out some of, the, some of the dross. He wants to get rid of some of the chaff. He wants to get rid of some of those that aren't on board. Why? Because if we have too many people, we might become proud and think, look what we did. And God says, this is not about you. This is about what God can do. That walk and do. You know, I've always wondered, why couldn't Jesus have started with a hundred disciples? Why did he have to have twelve? Why couldn't he have had a hundred? Why couldn't he have had a thousand? Could it be, just for you to think about, could it be that God was trying to demonstrate what he could do with twelve sold-out people for him? And look, did you know in the matter of almost 300 years, they changed the entire Roman Empire? In 300 years, twelve people. Because they were sold out. Why? Because they had seen the risen Lord and they believed. They believed. And they gave their lives because of the vision. They gave their lives of what they believed. And God used them in a mighty way within a little over 300 years. Moved the capital from Rome and it went into Constantinople and all that stuff. And, and Constantine says, we are now a Christian empire in name only. But the fact of the matter is, they changed the world. God wanted to show the world what He could do with a handful of people. Remember, sometimes less is more. Uh, sometimes it's better to have less. God may reduce the army. He may reduce those that, that are called and committed. He may do it. But there's something else in this passage as we look at it. As you face the odds, as you go against the odds, an affirmation may be received. So Gideon's got 300 men. And he's going against 135,000 tested soldiers. I'm sure Gideon had doubts. I'm sure he was uncertain. I'm sure he did not understand exactly what God was doing. But God had promised him multiple times, Gideon, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of the hands of the Midianites. Now God affirms Gideon even more, even though Gideon didn't ask. You know, Gideon's prone to ask. We looked at that last week. He's kind of, Lord, are you sure? Lord, are you sure? Lord, are you sure? Can you give me a sign? Can you give me a sign? Can you give me a sign? He never says anything here, but God gives him a sign. He gives him one more affirmation. Look at verses 9 and 11 of this passage. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. And listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. So God is giving further affirmation concerning what he's going to do. Here's what God is saying. He said, Gideon, it's a done deal. This is already done, Gideon. I just need you to be affirmed in what I'm going to do. Look at what happens, verse 13 14. So Gideon arrived. He makes his way into the camp. Gideon arrived. Just as a man was telling a friend his dream, I had a dream, he was saying, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. 
It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. <laughs> what an affirmation. What an aff- He's getting this straight from the horse's mouth, from the enemy. They were already recognized, man, we're goners. How I wish God would give me that kind of an affirmation. How I wish that God would give me an affirmation like that. Here's the point of the story. Barley was the cheapest form of bread you could make. It was reserved for the poorest of the people. And God was saying through this vision, with this word picture, that an inferior army is going to invade a mightier army and totally annihilate it. Look at Gideon's response in verse 15. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. I love that. And it goes on and says, then he goes and tells his men at the camp to get up. We're about to go attack. God's given you, given them in our hands. But he worshipped God. Can you believe that? There, and I do not know the context of, of this. Here he is in the middle of the camp. He's overheard what's going on. He's here and he spends time in worship. Now, I don't know if he raised a hallelujah. I don't know if he, he did that. Raise the hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I don't think that's what he did. Maybe he worshiped quietly in his heart. Maybe he offered up a praise to God at that time. But the Bible is clear. When he heard what God was going to do, he worshiped God. He didn't immediately share it with his men. He just worshiped God. Why did he do that? Because he knew that God was worthy and that God was able to deliver them from his, the oppression with this small band of men that God had put together. Matter of fact, I imagine that Gideon was probably humbled by the fact that God could even use him in this situation. God may give you a vision. God may give you for a vision for where you're supposed to deliver somebody who's in a stranglehold, in a stronghold. Sin has dominated life. Maybe that's at school. Maybe that's in your place of work. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's just a place where God puts you. God may give you a vision. Maybe God will give you a word from His Word and give you an affirmation. Or maybe God will, will, will speak to you through an affirmation from someone that doesn't even know about your situation. That happened to me a while back. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went to the Baylor football game. And we sat in our seats, and we struck up a conversation with the people sitting behind us. We, had, we did not know them. We just struck up a conversation talking with them. In the course of the conversation, he introduced himself to me. He said he's, a, he's on staff with the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. And he said, we're in the church planting and revitalization department, is what he said. And so I shared with him a little bit of our story, just in a casual conversation. I shared a little bit of my story. He shared a little bit of his story. And then he said this to me. He said, God bless you in your efforts. You do not know how important your efforts are for the local church. And then he said this, that the Southern Baptists of Texas are thinking about not really focusing on church planting as they are church revitalization. Because he said nine out of ten Baptist churches are dead and dying. Nine out of ten are dead or dying. Now here's the interesting thing about that. I said I didn't know these people. These are not the seats that I had last year. 
for the last four, four years, I had seats in the next section up. When George and Karen moved to West Virginia, they gave me their, I was able to get their seats. We sat under the shade. We don't have to worry about the sun. We don't have to worry about the rain. Really nice seats. So here we are setting these seats. This is only our second game to go. These people sitting behind us, that's not their seats. They were just sitting in the sun, sitting out of the sun because their seats were down in the sun and they were waiting until, until they could, until the game started, they go down and sit. Here's the thing. Out of over 40,000 people, McLean Stadium seats over 40,000 people, God put those two people sitting behind me on that day in seats that I did not normally have. Coincidence? In the words of Leroy Jethro Gibbs, I don't believe in coincidences. Why did God do that? Because He knew I needed an affirmation from Him that I'm right on track. Has God blessed you with an affirmation such as that before? How do you respond? What do you do in a situation like that? You know what you do? You worship God and you thank Him for the encouragement that He gives. And you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. What else? What else we see when you're, when you're going against the odds? Your arsenal may seem ridiculous. So Gideon's about to take his 300 people to go to battle. What happens? Look at verses 16 and 18. 16 through 18. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all the men with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Okay, here's his weapons. Trumpets, jars, and torches. Trumpets, jars, and torches. I don't know about y'all, but, but if I'm going into the battle... You know, I want the Navy SEALs. You know, I, I want the SWAT team on my side. I want the baddest and the biggest arsenal and weapons I could have. Man, I would have weapons strapped to my belt that I'd never even heard of before. Swords and, and knives and axes and hatchets and, and weapons. I'd have everything, especially on 300 going against 135,000. But no, God said, no, nah, let's just use trumpets, torches, and empty jars. Okay. Okay, God, whatever you say. Uh, and notice the thing about it. You know, the men didn't even question Gideon. They didn't say, say what? What are you talking about, Gideon? Uh, they didn't say that. I, I think they probably just got to the point, you know, they trusted Gideon. They trusted his leadership. They trusted that maybe he'd heard something from God. And they say, well, you know, hey, we're already down to 300 people. Let's just kind of weigh this thing out. Let's see how this goes. I think they kind of resolved themselves. This is what's going to happen. And all throughout history, God will use ridiculous weapons to defeat the enemy. David, he used a stone. Uh, we'll look at Samson in a, few, in a few weeks. And Samson used the jawbone of an ass. Can I say that? The jawbone of an ass to, to kill a thousand people. A jawbone. <laughs> ridiculous weapons that he used. This is a ridiculous arsenal against 135,000 people. I think many times that we as a church, we as individuals, we lean on our typical weapons. We lean on the things that we've always had, the things that we've always used, and we rely upon on those, those things. 
And what we do, listen, we keep doing the same things over and over and over with the same tools, with the same programs, with the same resources, expecting different results. And when the different results don't happen, we say, well, it must not be God's will. It must not be the way it's supposed to be. That's what worked in the past. If it worked in the past, it will work today. That's kind of the approach that we, that we take. You see, that's the nature of man. We, we have this tendency. We lean on our capabilities. We lean upon our physical weapons more than we depend upon the Lord to do the fighting force. But the Bible is clear. Our weapons are not physical. Our battle is not physical. Our battle is spiritual. We are fighting the spiritual forces. We can't see them, but they are strong and they are powerful. And we are up the at war with them. And we have three tools at our disposal. Here they are. You ready? Write these down. This is profound. This will revolutionize your life. The three tools that God gives us are prayer, praise, and proclamation. Prayer, praise, and proclamation. Those are the spiritual weapons that we have to engage the enemy, to challenge the enemy. And may I just tell you something right now. The enemy is not in here. The enemy is out there. But sometimes we're so busy fighting amongst ourselves that we don't see the enemy. It's out there. Not in here. We need to rely upon the supernatural power of God. Did you know that the church is experiencing uh, the supernatural and growing everywhere in the world except America? I just read this week that they, I think it's by the year 2030, maybe the year 2040, they say that China will be the world's, will be the largest Christian country in the world. China! And they're in the midst of a communism and oppression. You know why that is? You know why they're seeing the supernatural and why, why they're experiencing this, this phenomenal growth? It's because they're leaning upon spiritual weaponry and not their normal resources. That's the reason why. What else do we see in this passage? And then we'll be done. As you, against the odds, your allegiance will be rewarded. Look at verses 19 to 22. Gideon and the hundred men went with him, reached the edge of the camp. At the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, while each man held his position around the camp. All the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with the swords, and the army fled. And it tells you where they fled. The army fled. Here's the strategy. Blow the trumpets, and normally the leader blew the trumpet to sound the charge. Kind of like the old John Wayne Calvary movies. You had one bugler, he bugled the charge, one trumpet. But in this situation, all 300 men blew the trumpets. It made it think there was a lot more 
a bigger army than there was. They came at the end of the middle watch in the night. What was going on there? The people going to bed would be tired and those getting up would still be groggy. And so they would be kind of not have their senses about them when they heard this, these trumpets sounding. And then the sounding of, of the broken jars made it sound like there were more people than there was. And then when all the torches were lit, it would make it look like there was a massive army out there. And they were overwhelmed, and they didn't know what to do in that situation. But here's what I found amazing, and I underlined it, I circled it. I want you to highlight it in your Bible. I want you to circle it in your Bible. Look at the, the ver- verse 21. Each man held his position around the camp. Each man held his position around the camp. When everything was going crazy around them, and, and trumpets were sounding and jars were breaking and lights were flashing and people were shouting and the Midianites were down in the camp uh, in, in chaos and confusion. It says, every man on Gideon's team stood the ground. And they did not move. They held their position. And what happened? The Lord calls the Midianites to fight against each other. As I thought about this passage, as I prayed about this passage, This is what God told me. No, not in an audible voice. He doesn't doesn't speak to me with Bruce. He doesn't do that, you know, uh, because he knows that I couldn't handle it, okay? But he spoke. This is what he said. We are in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a battle. Some of you support the vision. Some of you have bought into it said, we understand. We understand what, where we're trying to do. We understand where we're trying to go. We understand this concept. Even if we don't know everything about it, we believe in the vision. And you want to see this church embrace the vision. Here's God's word to you. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. When all chaos breaks around, you stand your ground. You be committed to the vision that God has for us. I know the tendency is when, when all chaos breaks around us and everything's going crazy, the tendency would be to run. That would be, that's what I would do. I'd, I'd run. You know, I would, I would at least, if I would throw down, I'd grab my sword and, and I, I, I would grab my sword and either fight or I'd run. That's what the tendency of many people is. When the going gets tough, yeah, the tough get going, all right, going in the different direction. God's Word is... Stand your ground. If you believe in the vision, each man needs to hold his position. Each man to stay in his place. Because this was the part of the battle that God was going to fight. God was about to do something so amazing. And listen, all they had to do was sit back and watch. Because they'd been faithful right up the end. And all they had to do was simply watch what God was going to do. Imagine how rewarding that was. To sit back and watch God fight for you in in that situation. All they did was blow some trumpets and throw some jars down and hold a a, a lamp. Probably now being like an iPhone. Hold their iPhone up. And shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. That's all they did. And the Bible says the Midianites turned on each other. 
And then it says that after they turned to one another, I'm not going to look at this passage today, but it says after the Midianites turned to one another and they, they were killing each other, they began fleeing from that area. And it says that Gideon, the 300 men, joined the pursuit. But get this, later on it says, and all those that lived in the villages around them joined with Gideon and their men to pursue the enemy. And they pursued them all the way down where another tribe steps in. Stop it. Here's what I think God is saying. He said, if we will stand our ground and we will be faithful to what God has called us to do and, and we, we will fight the battle that needs to be fought and we will be faithful and stand our ground, he said, when it's all said and done and when it's all, God will bring other people alongside us to join with us in the vision and we will see the enemy destroyed. It will happen. I love that last part. And other people joined in because they saw what was happening. Their allegiance was rewarded. Why? They got to see God at work. They got to see God do something that only God could do. They defeated the enemy. They were delivered from their oppressors. And once again, they were victorious. I know that Western Heights has an assignment that is risky. Proclaiming the good news of Christ in a culture that is steadily moving farther and farther from God's design. Statistics do not lie. They don't tell all the story, but the statistics do not lie. The church in America is declining. But let me even be more clear, clear to you. It doesn't take somebody with a seminary degree... It doesn't take somebody with, that's an actuary that examines statistics to go back and look at Western Heights Baptist Church and see we are declining. There was a time, 20-something years ago, that we were running over 600-something in worship. We had over, we had, well, 400-something in worship. And we had a $680,000 budget looking to build a new building across the street. But we lost 1,250 people in a span of 20 years. Now, it does not take somebody that that's smart to know something ain't right. Something ain't right. We're declining. Some might say we're dying. You know why I don't think we're quite dead yet? Because there's still people being saved. There's still people that are joining. But we are declining in membership. We're declining in attendance. It doesn't take anybody. And so the answer that you say, what's wrong? The tendency is to blame it on the preacher. That's what we do, blame it on the preacher. Let's blame it on that preacher, let's blame it on that preacher. If we can just get them, they call, you know what they call these guys? The magic bullet preacher. That's what they call them. If we can just get the magic bullet preacher, everything will be fine. Of course, you know what the preacher says, if I could just get that magic bullet church, everything will be fine. I don't have the answers. But I know what the answer can be found. It can be found in Jesus. It can be found in Jesus. It can be found in His book. Everything we're supposed to do, everything we're supposed to behave is found in God's Word. And if we'll be faithful to what God has called us to do, we can do it. But the fact of the matter is, churches are already dead the funeral just hasn't happened yet. Christianity is declining in our culture. That's reality. We are no longer as influential as we used to be. We're losing the battle. We're losing the battle. 
We must return to our first love. We must return to our first love, Jesus, and then show and share His message. What we need is gospel change. We need to have a gospel change. The odds are against us stemming the tide of what's happening in the world around us. It's, it's, the odds are against us. But if we follow God's leading, He will use us to deliver His people. He will use us if we will be faithful. So I guess the only thing left is for you to ask, do you want to be a part of a church that is being used by God to deliver people? Do you want to be a part of a church where God wants to do something supernaturally that we cannot explain, but that He gets the glory? Because that's really all that's left. And here's the thing. If you do not want to do that, then God gives you permission to leave. Leave. Some people leave in attendance, but they don't really leave. They kind of hang around and still influence, still try to manipulate things behind the scenes when they're not even here. God gives you permission to leave. You'll still be loved, you'll still be cared for, but it's okay. It's okay. Don't be like those people who say, Pastor, I don't care what you do to this church after I'm dead. You know what my prayer is? Die today. Does that sound hard? Die today. Why is that? Because I know where you're going. You're going to heaven. I think you are. You're going to heaven. You're going to spend eternity with God. We ought to be more concerned about those who will not be spending eternity with Jesus than those that are going to spend eternity with Jesus. So if you can't buy into the vision, because the fact of the matter is, guys, I'm the pastor. I'm the one that God put here for better or for worse. In sickness and in health. In good times and bad times. I'm the pastor. And I'm asking you to join me in the battle. And together, together, as we're obedient to God, we will see God do amazing things. The Scripture's clear that God can do exceedingly more than we think or we can imagine. I want to see that.